0: Now we've seen over the past few months just how aware the Lord God was of the reasonings and the intentions of the hearts of his people. He knew when what they were thinking and why they were thinking it. And he knew it intimately. And so it is with you and me. It was Solomon who stated in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, in the second half of verse 13, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so we know that our lives are open before him in every way. Together, we've looked at the tensions that existed between God and his people in the days of Malachi the prophet. They doubted his love. They despised his worship. And they denied it when he called them on him. He charged them with polluting his offerings and showing him no honor or respect. And they wearied the Lord over and over again and denied each charge and demanded proof of their guilt from the Lord, which the Lord quickly provided to them. The last of these charges, as we've seen in the last few weeks, related to their withholding tithes and offerings from the Lord. The same old scenario was followed. They claimed their innocence, and God clearly demonstrated their guilt. This whole section of the prophet's message to the people of God ends with what we read in verses 13 and 15. So I'm looking now at Malachi 3, verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve the Lord. What is the profit of our keeping his charge, or of walking as in mourning before, before the Lord of hosts? And now, we call the arrogant blessed, evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test, and they escape. Now, in essence, beloved, their worship and all their professed love for God was a sham. It was an act, at times a very elaborate act, And one that often pleased them personally, but not the God they were claiming to serve. And it's just a reminder of how we need to pray and to rest on Christ in all our prayers and in all our devotion. So that our worship appears before the Lord as something more than a pretended devoutness but is really and truly received before the Lord as the worship due to his name. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 116, verse 12, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord, and I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. What can I offer in worship to the Lord? What do I have that I can give that will be acceptable in his sight? All I can do is lift the cup of salvation and say, this is my hope of acceptance, my resting in the salvation that comes to me through the grace and the mercy of my God. Now, it's at this point that the tone of the prophet's message changes in some degree. Because the rebuke of what for us is most of the first three chapters had some impact on the hearts of God's elect. God, the Holy Spirit, working by his word in the hearts of some of the people, had produced a profound effect. And we read that in verse 16. (coughs) Excuse me. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. You have here a particular group of people and what they did and what God did in respect to their actions. What the people did, this particular group of people, and then what God did in response to it. Look at first at who is involved here: those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name. There are 18 different words in the Hebrew language that are translated for us in our English Bibles as fear of some sort or another. This one isn't the most common, and it carries this sense. It is the fear or the reverence that arises from the realization of the strength and authority of the one we confront with weakness and helplessness. You kind of get that? It is the feeling you have when you're in front of somebody that you know you cannot resist, and there's no way to get away from and no way to avoid. And so you have a certain awe before that one. It's the word used to describe the fear that Lot felt after the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. He would not dwell in the city of Zoar after that, but he lived in the caves of the mountains. And he saw what became of sinful cities, and now he would have nothing to do with them. He saw how they couldn't stand before the wrath of God, how they couldn't stand before the judgment of God. And he was not going to put himself again in that context because there was no escaping except by the grace of God. And so he wanted nothing to do with the city. He feared to live in the cities. Now, when one fears the Lord, in the sense that's intended here by Malachi, it's not a fear that drives one away from God. On the contrary, because no one can flee from him. That's part of the character of the fear. I can't escape, and I know I can't escape. So that's part of what gives me the fear. I I can't get away. So it's not an idea of of being, I'm going to run. But rather, it's a spirit of submission and acquiescence or compliance based on the reverent acknowledgement that he is God and he acts with sovereign authority, and he has the right and the power to rule over all, and that resistance and resistance in that context is futile. But right here is where we have to pause and remember that this relates to God as God. Now, what do we mean by that? What we mean by that is God is not just awesome and intimidating in his justice and his judgment and his wrath, beloved, but also in his goodness and his grace and his love. <coughs> Sorry. It's both sides. Yes, he is awesome and intimidating in his wrath and his justice. But he is also that, all those things, in his love and his goodness and his grace. We're, we fear God as God. He is awesome in his judgment. He is awesome in his love. No one judges like him. No one loves like him. And it's in that full picture of who God is that we have fear. Before you on this table rest the elements that set before you the awesome and disarming character of that love. You understand, I hope, as you're here this morning and as we'll come in a few minutes to take up these elements, that this is the testimony of the fact that the Son of God came into this world, humbled himself, took on the likeness of men, humbled himself even to death, even to the death of the cross, For your sake, for the salvation of your soul, for the hope of your life. (coughs) And this is the demonstration, the testimony of that love that God has for you in him. And what an awesome thing it is. And it's easy to come and think nothing of it, just to come and it's juice and wine and, and crackers and take it and think nothing of it. But to do that is to take it unworthily because this is a testimony of love, uh, uh, an ardent love that no man, no woman, no child can stand before in his or herself, but only in Christ and his grace. In Ephesians chapter two in verses four through five, Paul says, but God being rich in mercy, and this is a testimony of the richness of his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. In Psalm 36, the psalmist David says in verse 7, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. You see that at the end of the verse, it describes them as those who thought on or who esteemed his name. Going back now to Malachi chapter three, it's those who thought on or esteemed his name. I believe you can understand that in this way. They thought, spoke, and acted like those who did not use his name in vain. What they said about him, they believed about him. And what they believed about him, they realized required action on their part. So they made a profession of faith. That profession of faith was based on who God is. Believing that God is who he says he is, it then translated into action on their part. It had to, because of who they believed God to be. You might recall that earlier in the prophecy of Malachi, the Lord said this. This is in chapter 1 and verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? They send up their objection almost immediately. But the Lord says, you haven't honored me. You honor me with your lips, but you haven't honored me in the devotion of your heart and the action of your life. This group that he's talking about now in this verse is the opposite of that. They're the ones who do honor the Lord, not only with their lips, but with their heart and with their faith and with their actions. They thought upon his name. They seriously considered and frequently meditated upon the discoveries of God, the discoveries that God had made of himself in his word and by his providence. And in their meditation of him was sweet to them and influenced them, says Matthew Henry. It had an effect, it, it produced fruit in their lives. When we read how this prophecy opens, we might be led to wonder if there were any who loved God and heeded his word. Because as we go through it, it just seems to be getting worse, worse and worse as we get down through the middle of, of chapter three. But the answer is that in every generation, no matter how corrupt and how degenerate, God has graciously preserved to himself a remnant. And so it is here. Even while all this is going on among the majority of the people, in the midst of those people are those who think upon his name, are those who honor him, those who fear him, fear the awesome character of his judgment and his justice, and his mercy, and his grace, and his love. So then it was those who feared God in the beauty of all his glorious attributes that are spoken of here. And then what is it they're doing? They're the ones who fear him. What do the fears do? They spoke often to one another in contrast to those whose words were hard or stout against the Lord. And that contrast is there in this prophecy. Those of like precious faith nourished one another with the truth. They encouraged each other with God's truth. Attempts to rob us, says McLaren, should make us hold our treasure the faster. And so it is. The the noise of the world is there to rob us of our confidence and our trust in the Lord. We have one another to encourage each other in our confidence and our trust in the Lord. The question of the world is, where is the love of God? And the answer of the body of Christ is, it's here. It's in me, it's in you, and we share the evidence of that love together and it encourages us in our faith. That sharpens us, it strengthens us, it encourages us against all the noise from without. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, in verses 45 through 47, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Lord says, you're betrayed. You say, Lord, Lord, but then you disobey. These are the ones who said, Lord, Lord, and obeyed. Now, I think we can well imagine just what sort of conversation this was among those who feared the Lord. And I'm sure it generally possessed two qualities. It edified the saints and it glorified God. You're admonished by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29, to let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And so when we hear that this conversation is going on among those who feared the Lord, we believe it's just this kind of conversation, where they're edifying one another and building each other up and encouraging one another in their faith. It's David who says in Psalm 7, or rather 71, in verses 14 through 19, "But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more." My mouth will tell of your righteous righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my mouth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You have done great things, O God, who is like you. I think we all can be tempted, at least, to carry about with us in the ears of one another the kind of news that does not build up the kind that sets aside the righteousness of God, the great deeds of the Lord, the mighty work of the Lord, and to take up in sharing with one another the pathetic efforts of men and the sinful acts of men. But it's good for the people of God to share together the great things of God, to share together what God has done for you and the way he has done it, And the evidence you have of the power of his hand and the might of his grace and the extent of his love. And that builds us up in faith. And that's what these people were doing in the midst of these generations around them that were saying, it's a weariness to serve God and we're willing to cheat God and to steal from him. These people in the midst of all that were saying, no, no, this is the living God. This is the true God. And when we serve him, He shows his love to us. What a blessing it is that we have so many opportunities, beloved, for fellowship and to talk to one another about the Lord. And the more we see iniquity abounding and sin being approved and accepted, the more verbal and the more bold we should be in challenging one another with what is right and what is true so that we can be that light and salt which our Lord calls on us to be. The world is constantly assaulting our ears, pounding them relentlessly, either gleefully or depressingly, with all sorts of information. And I mean the whole secular world, conservative, progressive, and every other sort of "iv." Paraphrasing Henry, the worst things become the better we should be. When wickedness is bold and daring, let not virtue and godliness be timid and sneaking. Rather, let us argue for God and raise, his, raise objections to all by the testimonies of his word. Someone once said that Rome's gold turned to silver, it's silver to iron, and finally it's iron to mud. The saints, by God's grace, are the nuggets of gold found in the muck and the mire of the mud. Now, what did the Lord do? So here are these people that feared the Lord, who esteemed his name. They spoke often together. And what did the Lord do? Two things are mentioned here. First of all, the Lord paid attention and heard them. Wilson, in his Hebrew word studies, defines the word heard in this way to dispose the ear or mind to ready, earnest, serious attention. To dispose the ear or mind to ready, earnest, serious attention. Now, recalling what we said earlier about those who truly fear and reverence God, truly believe that He is God indeed, it's prudent to dwell upon as you meet together in all these various venues and we fellowship together and we talk about the Lord. It's good for us to keep in mind that the ear of the Lord, so to speak, is disposed to a ready, earnest and serious hearing of what you have to say. As you're together in that fellowship, you're, you're encouraging one another. Keep in mind that your Lord, your God has a, a bent ear to hear what you have to say about him, who he is about the character of his love and the character of his justice the power of his might and the goodness of his mercy when you're teaching, when you're answering questions, when you're discussing, when you're praying together, he is hearing it all This is why King David prays in Psalm 19, in verse 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Sometimes we have something that the Lord's laid on our hearts and we're really ready to tell other people about. And we can't wait to do it. In those times, it's good for us to stop and to pray and pray this prayer of David. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. There are other times when we haven't thought about what the lesson is and we don't really aren't prepared to say anything and we should do the same prayer and not just talk to talk because the Lord has his ear on us. He is earnestly hearing what we have to say. The days of Malachi, just how particular and penetrating that hearing was, is illustrated in all the sections that we've already handled, right? Nine times in the first three chapters, the Lord says, but you say. He says to them something, and then he says, but you say. He knows the response. He's heard their response. And how they challenge him and how they claim they're not guilty and and how they demean him as God. He says nine times, but you say, showing how intimately he knows exactly what's not only on their lips, but in their hearts. David warned Solomon saying this in 1 Chronicles 28 and verse 9. And you, Solomon, my son... Know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. He knows the plans, the intents of your heart. And it's with the same penetrating thoroughness that he hears that he, with which he hears the complaints and the blasphemies and the doubts of those who despised him, that he heard the praises and the blessings and the confession of faith of those who feared him. That same hearing, yes, he could say to those who, who opposed him, but you say and condemn them. He could also hear those who were getting together and praising God among one another and speaking to one another and acknowledging their faith-filled thanksgivings because they feared him. You could hear those words just as well. Everyone who fears the Lord wants his or her mouth filled with sincere words of love and, and praise and wonder. And by this, we encourage and we give excitement to one another and we glorify God. That's what was going on here among those who feared him. And hopefully that's what goes on among us who fear him as well. The second thing that was done was a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Now, does this mean that the Lord needed a book or otherwise he would forget? He said to one of his angels, You better write this down in case I, I don't remember what they're saying in their private meetings when they're together. No, that's obviously not what is intended here. This is harking back to a practice of the times. And it was a way of illustrating the fact that the constant consciousness of God has his people and their devotion before him always. In the days of Malachi, princes and kings would have scrolls or tablets written listing all the services uh, that were rendered to them, good or bad, by those who served them. At times, they would have those scrolls read to them to keep things in mind, like at a time of promotion. The king would say, I'm going to promote so-and-so. And he would have the scribe read the testimony of this man's service to the king. Not just at that moment, but the whole history of his testimony. And so it would be obvious to everyone, this one deserves promotion. By the same token, if it was someone who was going to be judged, it was the same thing. Here is all the testimony of his opposition to the king. At times, they would have those scrolls just read to them. Not for any particular reason, except just to hear them to keep things in mind. But they also served as a reference to be consulted. We find an example of this very thing in Esther, the book of Esther, chapter 6, and verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. So it was just the night when he couldn't sleep, and so... We're looking for something to occupy his time. So he had the scribes bring the, De- the book of deeds and read it to him. In chapter 10 of Esther, in verse 2, And all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? So here all we see that all that Mordecai did for the king was written down, and kept in that way. This is not a testimony to the fact that the Lord needs to be reminded, but it is a testimony to us that our devotion to him is ever before him and is never forgotten by him. Now in verses 17 and 18, we read, "'They shall be mine,' says the Lord of hosts, "'in the day when I make up my treasured possessions,' the ESV says, or my jewels, as the King James says, And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. This section right here is described by Richard Stock as a text of the most sweet and comfortable context. Those who walk in faith live by their faith. Those who believe that God is their savior, the Lord says that these shall be mine, even my treasured possessions or my peculiar things. Now, the association of this word with jewels is a result of the Latin Vulgate translation of the Hebrew, choosing that word to image an individual's precious possessions, because at the time... Jewels were considered the most precious possessions you could have. In early Protestant translations, it was associated with the flock, with this idea. Sheep are scattered out all over the hills. They're intermixed and they're watched over by all the shepherds. But then comes the day when they need to be brought in and the shepherd calls his sheep, they know his voice and they follow him. And by calling, they, by calling them, he makes up his flock. And that's the precious possession in that context. And, and all the Protestant, early Protestant uh, translations of the Hebrew took that idea of the flock. Now, this doesn't raise the popular image created by the Latin, certainly, but it does reflect well the Hebrew And obviously, the general context of the Bible, particularly with what you read here in verse 18, which is very reminiscent of Matthew chapter 25, where in verse 32, Jesus says, before him, the son of man, will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. When the king, then the king shall say to those in his right, "Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world." Now, scholars have gone even a little bit further and found that this peculiar flock was that part of the flock which fathers would give to their children, or masters to their most trusted servants. Ultimately. The way to look at this, beloved, is that the emphasis is on something highly prized and treasured. Whether you're thinking about a flock of sheep that belongs to you or a precious brooch full of jewels. doesn't matter. It's something precious. The Lord promises to take such care of the godly and to lay them up so safely as one would a special jewel or treasure, says Stock. And then he says that they are spared— like his own sons or daughters. The first time we encounter this word is in the life of Moses, when the daughter of Pharaoh finds him in his little ark or basket floating in the reeds of the Nile. It's in Exodus chapter 2, verse 6. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him, or that is the same word, here in Malachi 3, she spared him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. So she saw him crying, took pity on him and spared him. And that's what the Lord says he is going to do for those who fear him, who speak one to another about him. He's going to spare them like a man spares his own sons. He's going to show pity. You find it again, in this text, in Second Samuel chapter 21, verses 5 through 7. They said to the king, that is David, the man who consumed us, that is Saul, and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them, but the king spared or showed pity on Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath that the Lord, uh, the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So Stock, says Stock, it is the Lord promising here and saying to them all, I will be indulgent towards those, the ones who fear me. And have pity upon the godly. I will deal tenderly, pardon, and remit their punishment. And this has been the hope of every believer in every generation. We call on the Lord to adopt us in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, his Son, and then to spare us for his Son's sake. We come to this table and we say together, beloved, Father, for the sake of your sons, spare us. And in that great day of final judgment, when you distinguish your flock, gather your sheep, secure that which is precious and dear to you from among all who have lived on the earth, remember us in the midst of what T. Thomas Moore calls the abounding wickedness. When you begin by holy wrath to judge your enemies, spare us. With all the fondness and love of a dear father, for Christ's sake alone. That's what we say when we come to this table. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18: Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Beloved, all of you who fear God, this table is for you. It is the testimony to you that God has heard your conversations about him, your testimony concerning him, your love for him, your faith in the work of his son and will receive you as his precious jewels or flock and will spare you like a father spares his son in that great day of judgment and show you the love of a father that is like no love ever known. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful scene in the midst of this hard prophecy. And Lord, we are thankful that as well as you know the despising words of those who hate you, you know the devotion of those who love you. Father, it's not of our own, it's of Christ. It's not acceptable because of our ardent desire, but because of Christ's gracious sacrifice. And so, Lord, we ask you to look on us, a precious flock, a peculiar flock, given to your Son, and, Lord, to spare us as you've promised. And as we reflect on that sparing, because of Christ's work, we pray that our hearts may be filled with joy And Lord, we might give thanks for that awesome love which you have shown to us. May we be stopped before it. May we be arrested by it. May we be awed by it. May we be thankful for it. We ask, Lord, for this mercy, this grace in our hearts. We pray, Lord, for those who may not know or understand all that the Savior has done. We pray, Father, that they would see even now that you are not only an awesome God of judgment, but you are an awesome God of love. And you showed that love by sending your Son. And in that Son, there is hope and life. These things we earnestly ask for and give thanks for. In the name of Christ our Savior, amen.